Welcome to the Checkable Health Podcast. We're helping everyday moms rethink how their healthcare begins at home. This podcast is for moms of school-aged children who were born in the 1900s and would buy an at-home strep test to check their child's sore throat symptoms from the comforts of home. Hi, I'm your host, Patty Post. I'm founder and CEO of Checkable Health. I'm a mother to two amazing sons that are teenagers and a daughter who's a tween. I've been married to my husband, Andrew, for nearly 20 years, and we live in Fargo, North Dakota. I believe that we all should be empowered to make healthcare decisions from home. This podcast, with my hope, will equip you to do just that. Make better healthcare decisions for yourself and your family. Today, my guest is Cody Baxter. He's a physician's assistant, and he specializes in weight loss management. We're going to talk about obesity and how obesity affects all of us. Two out of three Americans are considered obese. And how can we change that number? Why is that number increasing as our access to healthy foods, our access to gyms is actually uh, better than it was 15 years ago? Why is the obesity rate gone from 4.6% in 1980 to 14% in 2019? Worldwide, it's actually tripled since 1975. What Cody talks about is really the underlying things behind the why that makes us gain weight, that makes us sedentary, that really is are things that we should be aware of that we can change in order to change our lifestyle and be healthier. Because after all, obesity is a chronic disease and you do not have to suffer silently. You can do something. You probably have someone in your family who battles with chronic obesity or maybe you do too. And the lifestyle modifications such as quitting drinking Diet Coke, well, you don't have to start with quitting. Maybe it's, you know, bring it back by four cans versus eight cans. Maybe it's taking a walk a couple of times a day when you're at the office. We're going to talk about some of these things with Cody and how he develops relationships with his patients and he allows them the freedom to make their decisions, change their lifestyle, but then holds them accountable as well. Hope you get a lot out of this interview. We did break it into two. Uh, The second episode, uh, we will be talking about different ways that you can help with your chronic obesity, and that is through the use of medication. And we're also going to talk about things like how do we talk about our bodies with our kids? How do we talk about losing weight when we're around those that we love? Hope you get a lot out of this episode. Uh, Cody Baxter is a fantastic clinician, and he happens to be the husband to our fantastic graphic designer, Tila Baxter. So this was really an honor for me to meet him. I hope to bring him back because he really is a wealth of knowledge. So I hope you get a lot out of this, and let's get into the episode. Cody, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic. So I always kind of mess up the introduction because there's so much to say when it comes, especially with this topic, when you have a medical background. So would you please share with the audience uh, what your specialty is and what types of patients you work with and what you do every day? 
to get the disclosure part out of the way, this uh, anything that I talk about today doesn't represent my employer specifically and are my own views and opinions, of course. And none of this is to be considered medical advice, of course, but strictly my opinion and my perspectives. Uh, so I work in a family medicine practice and started as a primary care provider four years ago, my first job out of school, and seeing people of all ages from birth to death is the way that we describe family medicine. When I was in school, I felt that I was especially drawn to an area of medicine that really has not gotten the attention it deserves. And, um, and that specifically is obesity medicine or weight loss medicine. They're interchangeable in terms of how we talk about it. And I think this is something that fits so perfectly into a family medicine or primary care practice because it is so prevalent in the United States um, and around the world right now and and only getting worse. So if we don't incorporate this as primary care providers into what we are dealing with uh, on the front lines of medicine, um, then I think we are missing the boat. So what I started to do is just incorporate obesity medicine as part of my primary care practice. Uh, and it really started to take off into more of a, a specialty niche for me. So I still work within a family practice clinic. I still have my own primary care panel, but I am taking uh, referrals from all departments and external uh, referrals to specifically deal with medical weight loss or obesity medicine. And you are a hot number locally. How far booked out are you? It's hard to get an appointment with you. I hear that frequently. Um, I guess <laughs> business is good. Um, uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, uh, but five months out is about where we're at. And and, and that's really not to my satisfaction either. I wish I could clone myself or Mm -hmm. uh, probably more realistically continue to grow and expand the education of other providers and encouraging them to really incorporate these uh, even pieces of this into their own primary care practice. How long is each of these appointments with your patients? Yeah, the initial consultation is going to be the the long one, so to speak. Uh, it's scheduled for an hour. It wasn't always that way, but um, I was taking an hour in the room. So we said, hey, we better actually <laughs> give me enough time so that uh, I don't have the nurse knocking on my door telling me I've got patients waiting down the hallway. So, <laughs> yeah. And really the reason why is that you know weight loss or obesity medicine is comprehensive. It, there are so many inputs and factors that can make this such a hard thing to deal with. And if we are not comprehensively treating and approaching um, our treatment plan, we just don't really have a great chance of long-term success. So those first visits, we're going through a lot of things. It's a dietary a recall or a dietary intake. Uh, it's talking about exercise. It's talking about their sleep, uh, their mental health, any previous um, programs they've tried, any other current medical conditions they might be dealing with and treatments that they are doing for those that may impact their ability to pursue weight loss at that time. Um, and those topics, any one of those can you know, derail me for 20 minutes as far as yeah. getting down the, the rabbit hole of why that may be uh, more important for that individual patient that we spend time on one of those things because it might be a barrier that's keeping them from being able to attack the true problem of, of the weight. And will you explain to us what a chronic condition is? versus an acute condition? Yeah, great question. So uh, an acute condition would be something that you might go to the walk-in clinic for a sinus infection or something that you may go to checkable medical for and and get an at-home strep test at some point in the near future. Yep. (laughs) Shameless plug there, right? (laughs) Thank you, Cody. Yeah. 
Do you or your child have symptoms of strep throat, such as sore throat or fever? Do you want to help an innovative North Dakota company validate their at-home strep test? Checkable Medical is currently enrolling children ages 5 and up and adults for a strep throat study. Go to www.testforstrep.com to see if there's a site near you. Again, that website is www.testforstrep.com. So something that is short-term that can be dealt with and has come up very recently. A chronic condition obviously is something that we deal with longer term. So obesity was defined as a chronic disease back in 2013 by the American Medical Association. So we've known for much longer than that, that that has been the case. And you don't have to even have any medical training. You talk to or you know people who have dealt with obesity and it did not happen to them overnight. It is something that they have dealt with as far back as they can remember for most people or for for many, many years. And so calling it a chronic disease, I'd like to tell my patients is not to tell them that they're broken or that that, that we can't help them. It's more to give it the seriousness it deserves from a treatment approach. So short-term fad diets or short-term weight loss programs that are very intensive and restrictive are not the best way to treat a chronic condition. Everything that we do should be sustainable because chronic diseases require chronic management. So part of a treatment plan should be this needs to be something you can be doing forever. Mm-hmm. So that's where you talk about lifestyle changes and sort of disease management would be changes to actions that you are doing consistently and that are making it a chronic condition. Yeah, absolutely. So there are many things you know, outside of our control that really can put us in a difficult position to manage our weight. Um, we can't change our parents, for instance, so our genetics are what they are. So we acknowledge those in the visit and we talk about how that may impact them, but we really try to focus on, okay, what can we control within our day-to-day life? And so some of the things that we might look at, you know, diet and exercise are the first thing that always come to everybody's mind, mm-hmm. but really they are just a part of the picture. And so Beyond that, which I think are very important, you know, I talked about a few other areas that I think don't get uh, thought about quite as directly by a lot of my patients. So I have a lot of patients who get very poor sleep, for instance, and we know there's really good data about uh, poor sleep and our ability to lose weight and really going to make things hard if we do not have good sleep. So I screen very aggressively for obstructive sleep apnea, which is you know, very high risk for people that may have uh, weight conditions. But I also talk a lot about insomnia and um, improving sleep hygiene. I know it can be a do as I say, not as I do thing as we talk about not being on our phone in bed or yeah, you know things such as that. But that can be a, a lifestyle change that we focus on that really is not that direct going to cause weight loss. But if you sleep poorly, life is hard, right? (laughs) So weight loss is hard to begin with. So if we can sleep better, if we can talk about your mental health and ways to manage stress beyond turning to food, which is a good quick fix, but not a good long-term solution, then we are going to be in a better place to get to the point where we are taking in fewer calories than we are burning, which is the scientific way that weight loss actually occurs. Sleep hygiene. I've never heard of that. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, So sleep hygiene basically is all the behaviors that affect your potential to get a good night's sleep. 
So we think about when's the last time we had any caffeine for the day? What is our exposure to any kind of blue light from screens? What is our bedtime schedule? So one that uh, we talk about a lot is people are going to bed at a good time during the weekday. The weekend comes, it's time to have fun. They are going to bed much later and getting up much later. Our body has a circadian rhythm. It likes structure. It likes consistency. So if half the week we are going to bed at 10 p.m. and the other half we're going to bed at 2 a.m., we're going to have a really hard time developing a constant rhythm and our body is going to have a hard time knowing when is it time to go to sleep and just as importantly, when is it time to wake up. If we're waking up at 5.30 a.m. during the work week and sleeping until 10 a.m. on the weekend, again, that rhythm is really going to be thrown off on a weekly basis. So those are just a few of the the sleep hygiene things that we talk about and ways to improve the chances that we're going to get a good night's sleep. Gosh, I have to tell my teenagers that because they love to sleep in on the weekends in the summer. Then we come back to school and they are just wrecked, like trying to get up in the morning, but then they still want to stay up at night. Out of curiosity, do you recommend a melatonin or are you against a melatonin? Oh, that's a wonderful question. So I think there's a role for melatonin. It is probably one of the safer supplements that we do have out there in terms of the side effect potential is pretty low. And I'll talk about in an adult population, I think in pediatric patients or minors and children, it's a different scenario. Not that it's unsafe, but I can speak more specifically to the data in adults. Very safe overall. We can take melatonin long-term It does not affect our body's ability then to start producing it if we were to stop taking it. For instance, I think the biggest, if I could say one thing about melatonin that I really talk to my patients about is we think of it as this short-term sleep aid of like, oh, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. I'm going to take melatonin. It, for some people, it can be helpful in that regard, mm-hmm. but where it is more helpful is to really help reset and restore that circadian rhythm that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And so it is more often beneficial taken over a period of weeks or you know, for maybe a month straight and trying to get it into the system at about the same time so that we are regulating that circadian rhythm and starting to feel tired when we should. Mm-hmm. And so in a one night fashion, maybe you get some benefit from it, but you're more likely to get consistent benefit from it, to use it in a way where you are taking it consistently for a period of at least a few weeks to determine if it's something that's helpful for you or not. Okay. So with regularity, try it out for a few weeks to see if it works and, and manage that sleep schedule well. Yes. Get your sleep hygiene together. That's right. Got it. Now let's talk about the numbers of when we talk about obesity from your patients. What are we seeing in the U.S. in terms of number of people that could be, I like it that you said that it's not, don't be shameful. It's not a label. You know, it is what it is, but let's talk about those numbers. In terms of just overall prevalence of of obesity? Yes. There's multiple ways, I guess. I think I would start with defining obesity, which I think is important too, uh, because you know, from an insurance or um, like a medical system coding perspective, uh, we use the body mass index uh, or BMI, mm-hmm. which we've all heard about. Um, any one of us that have put our height and weight into a BMI calculator and then uh, been told what we quote unquote should weigh for a normal weight uh, might be a little bit depressed by the BMI. Uh, and I think for us as obesity medicine specialists, it is very much a rough screening tool. Um, okay. So that's the one you're going to hear referred to most commonly just because it's very easy to put in some numbers into a calculator. Height and weight are easily 
measured and, and can give us a tool. So that definition of, of obesity is a BMI of 30 or higher with the BMI of between 25 and 30 being that overweight category. But it's really not the best tool. I, b- I believe the BMI tables are about off of data from about 100 years ago and through like life insurance companies at the time. So there's a lot of, I think, improvement that can be made in that regard. And so I like to use, when we talk about obesity, some of the other definitions, which would be like the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists has a really good term, which is a chronic disease characterized by physiological processes that result in increased fat mass, which can result in increased morbidity or mortality. So increased health conditions or or death. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really what that means is why that differs is really obesity truly is excess fat tissue that can be harmful to our health long-term. And that can happen both in a weight that falls within a normal BMI or within a BMI that's elevated. So that's probably a better term for it. So when we reclassify that, you know, I don't know that I have specific data that tells us just how prevalent this is, but somewhere in that 35 to 40% prevalence in terms of true obesity within the United States. And then if we take into account like the overweight category, um, and specifically if you're overweight with a condition or what we call comorbidity that can mm-hmm. affect, be affected by your weight, those that captures another, you know, 25 to 30%. So it's about two thirds of us who have probably some excess weight that is potentially affecting our health. It would seem like everyone would. That scale, I completely can relate to. Well, I look at my BMI, I'm like, oh, that's crushing. Like, I thought I was doing so well. And like, I've lost 20 pounds, but yet I'm still like on this 22. Wait, I have 22% fats? Like, that's a really high number to me. And it's that's frustrating. But I'm glad to hear it as... And it is fat mass. Like as you're trying to get healthier, we should be increasing our muscle mass, decreasing our fat. So how do you prescribe that to patients? How do you start out? If I was going to, if I came in and we did our assessment for an hour and typically what comes next? How do you manage this? How do you get better? It can be daunting because there are times where I can go through, you know, that intake questionnaire, that initial consult and you know, in my head, I can think of maybe four or five things that we could really start with. And and oftentimes, what happens with weight gain, you know, people have usually had some weight gain, which is why they end up um, coming to see me. And what it happened is this, really this negative cycle, right? So maybe it's a life event. Maybe there was a death in the family, let's say. Mm. So then they went through a period of time where their mental health was not in the best place. Well, now, because that happened, they felt less willing or less motivation to go to the gym, which they had been doing regularly. Now they're not going to the gym. That doesn't help their mental health either, because we know that working out is is such a positive thing, both physically and mentally for us. Mm -hmm. And if we don't work out and we typically have been, our mental health's not in a good place. Now our sleep starts to suffer. And as you can imagine, all these things start to build up. And and then on top of that, our eating behavior tends to to follow. Um, if we mm-hmm. want something that just is going to give us a quick energy boost because we're tired, or if we are one of many people who might find ourselves eating our feelings, mm-hmm. then our dietary uh, adherence is not going to be in order. So all that is to say is my favorite strategy is really let's pick one thing and let's, of the things that we've identified, maybe 
the person already has a good idea where they want to start, a lot of times they're kind of just like overwhelmed by it. And it ends up being not my job to pick, but help present a few options. And I'll talk about, Mm -hmm. here's a few things I think we might be able to work on. Which one of those sounds most reasonable to you or sounds like something that you are ready to attack? Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important to individualize that treatment and give the patient power to decide and really have a say in how things go. The last thing I wanted to be is they come to me, I tell them what they have to do, they walk out the door, and I didn't even really ask them if that's something they felt like was reasonable or that they want to do or that they can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it has to be, it is a patient-driven approach. So I often say I'm reading the map and I'm sitting in the passenger seat next to you, but ultimately you are the driver. And that gives them power that, hey, I get to decide. And also once we get some positive results and some weight loss, it is their weight loss. They earned that. And and yeah. I can point back to that same analogy. Look where you took yourself to, right? Mm-hmm. So getting back to the original question is, I picked something. Um, I identify a few things. Maybe it's you know something very simple, like they are drinking a couple cans of pop per day and a you know, regular soda or something like that. And there's a lot of extra empty calories there. So we just talk about, is it realistic to think we might be able to cut back on that? I could say, you know, ideally none is the answer, right? But Mm -hmm. if you're drinking two or three sodas a day, one is better than two. Mm -hmm. So can we get to one? Is that realistic? Sometimes they exceed and say, no, I think I can cut it out altogether. Great. But if, if one is all that they feel like they can do, hey, we're moving in the right direction. And this is a long term approach. And so maybe down the road, we'll get to zero. But we have to get to one before we get to zero. So let's focus on what is attainable and make that little bit of a change. And then, you know, maybe we focus on a few other things. I will tell you that one of the first things oftentimes I don't really encourage being the first thing is if they are not currently doing a bunch of exercise activity, they are at their, usually at their heaviest weight of their life or somewhere close to it. They're feeling pretty bad about themselves. Maybe they have some pain associated with this weight gain, all that sort of stuff. Exercise is really important long term, but it is something that the data tells us is not a primary driver of weight loss. Mm. So I think that's something that's really important to think about the role of what exercise does and doesn't do for us. You know, you may have heard like you can't out exercise a bad diet or you can't out on the four or, you know, there's all these terms, (laughs) right? Just as importantly for me, from an evolutionary standpoint, this makes a lot of sense. So if we think back to the caveman days, If you had, let's say, two different cavemen and all of a sudden uh, food became scarce, let's say a meteor hit or an ice age or whatever that happens in those days, the caveman, who's a hunter and gatherer for their food, needs to then do what in order to stay alive? They need to either expand their reach by increasing physical activity, you know, going further places to find food, and they also are having less of a calorie intake during that time since food is scarce. The caveman who didn't adapt to those conditions continued to burn calories at the same rate and then with the increased physical activity was burning more calories in a time where there was less food available. That caveman died. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like starvation. Yes, yep, he starved and yeah. died. And so yes. the the genes from that caveman that were not adaptable to the environment did not get passed along. Unfortunately <laughs> for us, the ones that got passed along are the one who, as physical activity increased, the body reacted by slowing down metabolism to preserve calories. 
as we recognized weight loss was occurring, the body increased hunger signaling hormones to tell the caveman to go get more food. You need more in order to maintain what is nutritious for you. So super helpful for the caveman. But if we put him in current day America, what, what we call an obesogenic environment, where food is at our fingertips and we've automated many things out of many types of movement out of our day, that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. is the yeah. really short answer. So as we increase physical activity, burn 500 calories on the treadmill, we are not 500 calories ahead. The research tells us it's much less than that because the body is adaptable and smart enough to then do little things throughout the day. Imperceptible mm-hmm. changes in hunger. Maybe you just have a few extra bites at lunch. A small changes in our physical activity. Or maybe we um, don't have as much nervous energy throughout the day. We, we aren't bouncing our leg. We aren't fidgeting. We don't get up to grab the remote. We just sit there because not something we physically think about, but subconsciously, it's little ways to save calories because of the increased calorie burn elsewhere. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So really, really uh, important things to, I think it's important for people to be able to focus their energy on what does and doesn't matter mm-hmm. for weight loss. And so that's where that's not a primary thing for me to focus on right away. It is, however... Something as we get further into the weight loss journey becomes more important for two reasons. One, we know that people who exercise consistently are less likely to regain weight. So when we talk about a chronic disease needing to be managed chronically, that's where exercise comes in. More importantly, is it's going to prevent weight regain or further weight gain. It's just not going to drive significant weight loss. And as we talked about obesity being that increased fat mass sort of disease, exercise activity, specifically strength training or resistance training activity, is super important for uh, maintaining as much of that lean, healthy muscle mass, which will help keep our metabolism going and is the type of mass we want to keep preferentially while we lose the fat mass. So when we're looking at women that are, let's just say women 30s, 40s, and that our primary listenership is females, how do you recommend the diet given all of these different diets? I mean, I have my boys watching the liver King to Gosh, yeah. <laughs> there's carnivore MD to rich roll. Who's a vegan to, I mean, there is just like across the spectrum. It is very confusing. And for me, I am an emotional eater, like stress and, always have exercised very heavily, but then I would find myself emotionally eating. And it felt like if I was running this vegan diet or eating this vegan diet, I was just choosing like Funyuns and broccoli and Oreos. Like that was my diet and rice. Like, okay, that's not healthy. So given all of the noise in our culture right now, if you have made the decision and I always think of, okay, what if I don't have access to a care provider like you? How do I listen to this and have actionable advice or like take a step? What are some tools that I can access Googling? What do you recommend? Where do people go? This is a super important topic and one that does have, if you spend enough time researching and listening to many of the different people who are willing to share their, their own personal advice, you could be convinced that there is nothing 
that you can eat <laughs> because there's yes oh you know so if you if yeah. you read enough diet books you're you're totally paralyzed by over analysis right <laughs> yes. and so really it is the boring basics and what this comes back to is following the science and the and the studies of long-term weight loss and what it shows is that there are no specific diets you know that have superior weight loss outcomes when used long term so what that really just means is that it needs to work for you and it needs to be something that fits within your life your your family your other health conditions your genetics your ethical, you know, importance, if, you know, mm-hmm. from like a vegan standpoint or something to that effect, and what you have access to, all that sort of thing. And so to give people a very rigid, you have to do this, this, and this, we're going to miss so many people that aren't able to do this, this, and this. And so what do people yeah. do in that instance is they're like, well, I can't do all of these things. So I'm not going to do any of it. Yes. And then they're right back to where they started, right? Yeah. It's this all or nothing mindset. So my dietary approach is I'm diet agnostic is what I tell people is there is not one diet you're going to hear me say this is the way. What it really is, is finding what are the areas within your current dietary patterns that are probably the easiest for us to address or that are going to give us the biggest change. And from that, let's work towards what is uh, healthy. I think three foundational things that I talk to people about starting out. One is as many fruits and vegetables as you want and as often as you want. I have yet to have a patient show up in my office and be there for a weight consult and say, I just, you know, I eat too many apples and peas and broccoli and I'm just hundred pounds overweight. Yeah. Right. It just, it's never the thing in your diet that has gotten you in trouble. Yeah. So lots of nutrients, lots of fullness and satiation signaling for the fewest amounts of calories. Mm-hmm. So that's one. The second would be getting some protein intake from whatever sources that you know are most accessible and that you like and trying to do that with some sort of protein source with each of our main meals. So we'll go through and talk about the primary protein sources that are out there and what people like or what they might be able to do or what they don't like specifically. And my, I'm a mm-hmm. big fan of, if you don't like it, don't force yourself. Right. Again, don't that's eat not fish. Sustainable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, you don't, if you don't like eggs, you don't have to eat eggs. Yeah. If you don't like cottage cheese, which is cottage cheese is a love it or hate it, right? Yes. If you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. But if you like it, yeah. it's a really great protein source. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, good point. Going through and finding what are some uh, things they might be able to do there. And then the third is really trying to limit calories from beverages. And that's, you know, sugar sweetened beverages and alcohol intake. Mm-hmm. And really from there, it's if there is some of that, can we reasonably cut back? Or if, you know, if we feel like that's not an area where they're willing to make changes at that point, then we have to be a little more diligent with other areas of our diet at that point. So those three things, if we're doing those on a regular basis or doing pretty well on those three foundational principles, plants and protein, limiting calories from beverages, we're really going to have pretty good success. Mm-hmm. So from there, then it's let's work on if there are some more specific issues. So we talk like emotional eating, like you talked about, that can be a situation where we do have uh, medication options that can be quite helpful for people, or we have stress reduction techniques, or we talk about what are the triggers for this, and how do we improve our food environment so that we do 
that we're putting our future self in a good position. So if we know that the uh, chocolate chips in the cupboard are go-to stress eating thing, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe we should not keep those there on a regular basis. That sounds really basic, but it's like, if that's a trouble thing, we are mentally saying no to those hundreds of times a day, whether we know it or not. And eventually Mm -hmm. we're going to say yes. If they're not there, the threshold at which we're going to have to be stressed out to get in the car and drive to the grocery store is probably a lot higher. (laughs) And, And we're more likely to find something else to replace that. That was a great episode. Thank you to Cody Baxter for all of this useful information. That was a real reality check when we talked about having access to those things that are our stress triggers, like the chocolate chips in the cupboard. Holy cow. Like, why do I keep them there? It's like, I I mean, it's the potato chips too. I'm not going to lie. Having them at the office, having them in my house. um, It's hard for us moms because I know with kids around and entertaining, we have to have access to those things and you're not going to put stuff under lock and key. So it's definitely a battle and there are ways to manage it. And I really appreciate his tactical ways of changing our lifestyle to be healthier. I also have really shifted my way of thinking about exercise and that exercise is not the driver of weight loss. That was a really impactful um, comment for me because I have always worked out so then I can have a calorie deficit. And it's just uh, recently in the last couple of years that I truly work out because I enjoy it. I enjoy how my body feels afterwards. I enjoy getting my sweat out of my body and I feel invigorated and I just feel more confident and I feel overall better. But not having it as the weight loss driver, we can't outrun the fork. Another goodie. So Cody, thank you for all of those truth bombs. Our next episode, episode two, I'm going to talk about with Cody what I have done with medical weight loss and how I have used a prescription and how there are many other forms of medications that can help us with obesity and weight management. Um, Unfortunately, they're not as promoted as other uh, weight loss drugs or as other drugs out there, but I will give you a testimony that it is worth it. So tune in for the next episode, episode two with Cody Baxter, a physician assistant and weight loss management expert. Thank you so much for joining me and see you next time.